My name is Todd. This is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 605. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding. And always remember our motto, which is the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. On today's show, um, I am pulled up a few clips from an interview I heard on a podcast called People I Mostly Admire, which is an off-branch podcast of the Freakonomics podcast. And uh, the guy, uh, the interviewer, I forget his name, but I'll pull it up, interviewed... Angela Duckworth. Thank you, sweetie. Angela Duckworth. Which we actually talked about her a few podcasts ago, Mm -hmm. but there were some things in this... Um, because she's the person who um, kind of, she's the one who did her research about grit Mm -hmm. and brought that um, more mainstream. And we also, we discussed how she has helped us redefine what she meant by her research because a lot of people took grit and ran with it in a direction of never give up. (laughs) Um, And it's much more nuanced than that. And the discussion that, you know, Todd is going to share um, actually goes in a lot of different directions. Yeah. It's grit is kind of the, there's like an underlying, but it's really about meaning and it's about self-esteem and it's about um, much, much deeper yeah. areas of grit. But first, Kathy does this thing called Zen Parenting Moment. If you listen to this podcast, you already know that. Um, and we focus on one a day. Oh, I was going to bring that uh, Buddha thing uh, down. There was one that I found, but... Wait, I, what, it, what was the gist? I don't remember. I looked at it more than one day ago, which means I have no idea. Was it funny? It was uh, confusing. Okay. <laughs> but I'll have to bring that up next time. Okay. So um, it comes out twice a week. This one we're going to share is the one that she wrote called Choose. And this is the quote. Kathy always leads with a quote from somebody else. And it's by David Foster Wallace, who um, is an author, rest in peace, David Foster Wallace. And he says, learning how to think really means learning how to exercise some control over how and what you think. It means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how you construct meaning from experience. And I'm going to play just a few, maybe 30 seconds of the This Is Water clip that we have played numerous times to each other and probably on the podcast. But that is not the point. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is going to come in. Because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop. Because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. All right. So the whole nine minutes is as gold as that is. Um, But I don't want to play the whole nine minutes. But it's set to video. I'll include it in the show notes if you want to. It rocked my world when I first saw it. And I think it rocked your world, sweetie. Um, So I don't know if you want to riff off of the clip I just played or what you wrote, but go ahead. Well, you know, how many stories can we come up with during a day where we have to decide how we're going to respond and kind of on the fly construct meaning from the experience, right? That's basically how I view every 
choice I make during the day, which it's why it's so important to be conscious or self-aware. Um, not so you can tell people how Zen you are, but because it determines your choices and then how you derive meaning from the choices. So the story I told was just that I was driving there was somebody who was backing out of their driveway. So of course, like a good driver, I slowed down and, you know, it was like not in a hurry. It was like, this is fine. And then that driver took like so long to back out of the driveway. Okay. If you guys ever had that experience, like where you're like, okay, speed it up. I have my version of that is when you're waiting for a parking spot and you yeah. see that the person just gets in the car yeah. and you're like, okay, just turn the key in the ignition and put back it in reverse out. and back out. And, you know, it seems when I want that to happen, without exception, uh, they take anywhere between one and two minutes to back out. Right. Which I ha- I do all the time yeah. because I'm making sure my phone's plugged in. I'm yeah. making, okay. So, but this person was backing out, taking forever. And I switched from stopping and not being in a hurry and listening to the song that was playing on XM radio and being fine to all of a sudden being angry, annoyed and feeling as if I'm being disrespected by this person backing out of the driveway because they're going so slowly. And the, the, the bonus of being an observer of your thoughts is that you then realize you switched. Like that's, it's not about judging yourself and being like, wow, now I'm a bad person. It's that, wait, how come a minute ago I was fine and now I'm mad at this person and I'm feeling like I'm a victim of this situation? And the the bottom line is, it was a it was an older man, older gentleman, and once he pulled out and got out of the um, driveway, he looked at me in his rear view mirror and smiled, and he waved, so appreciative. And I said in the thing that he kind of reminded me of my dad, mm. and then drove away. And because I didn't start honking or getting annoyed or like feeling as if I had to like scowl at him to prove to him why his driving isn't up to par with mine. Um, I got to, can, I got to choose kindness in that situation. And you know, I, even that phrase sounds so like choose kindness, but really what does that mean? Either be annoyed at that person and decide that you're the victim or be patient, breathe and realize as David Foster Wallace said, this world is not just about you getting somewhere. This man in the driveway probably is not as comfortable with his driving as he once was. He's being extra cautious, and why would that be a bad thing? You construct meaning, you choose. And I know a lot of people who would just choose, he's a jerk, you know, he shouldn't have done that, he should have waited for me. But that's another way of constructing meaning that I think can lead us down a path of believing that the world is not a great place. Um, So... Well, and, Choose. you know, for me, I just wrote down as I heard you talking is the stories we make up. Yeah. You know, the first story you made up is, hey, everything's fine. I'm doing fine. The second story is, why isn't this car moving faster? Mm-hmm. It needs to move faster. And then my guess is once the man waved and you saw it was an elderly man that kind of reminded you of your dad, you made up another story. It's like, what a sweet man. Right. And it's, And this all happened within like probably seconds, but a lot of times this happens in microseconds in our brain. Exactly. And uh, the idea of, you said, being the observer of your thoughts and that, you know, if I can encapsulate something that I try to do in my life and maybe I try to do on this podcast is 
if, if you would have said that phrase to me 10 years ago, I would have been like, I have no idea what you're talking mm. about. Mm. So I just wonder if you want to riff a little bit on, on what it means to be the observer of your thoughts. Well, I can do this by telling a story. Okay. So yesterday I spent about uh, three hours with a 12-year-old girl and she and I were talking about, and it wasn't one of my kids, it was uh, another girl that I know really well. And she and I were talking about all these things about emotions and feelings. And she said to me, she said, you know, we were talking about coping tools and she said, what I've realized about my coping tools is that now when I get sad, I realize that there's someone else that sees myself getting sad and I take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And I, and when she says someone else, I'm putting that in air quotes, she means she has recognized there is an observer in her who sees her getting sad. And she said, so in that moment, I realize I'm watching myself. And she even said sometimes she takes pictures because mm-hmm. she's like, okay, who's the observer and who's the one crying? And she goes, but it's been so soothing to me because I realize that there's somebody in me that takes care of me. Mm-hmm. And so if I, I don't know if I could give any better explanation than that 12-year-old. Your observer is the one in you who sees what's happening from a non-judgmental perspective. Mm -hmm. It's the one that is just viewing what's happening to you or for you or with you as a human. And that's the person, that's the part of you you're able to acknowledge during a meditation. What that means is in meditation, you watch your thoughts. So who is watching your thoughts? The observer. The thoughts cause you to be emotional. The things you feel and see cause emotion, but the observer recognizes how they come and go. So you don't need to stop them. You don't need to change them. You don't need to judge them. The observer is just like, oh, there's that. John Kabat-Zinn and a few other people have talked about how you can view thoughts as bubbles that pop, you know? Oh, there's that thought, pop. There's that thought, pop. And you don't even need to pop them. They will on their own. They come and go. The observer is the one who sees what's happening. And I think why I wanted to bring up, you know, this this girl who's 12 is this is not something I feel like this is not only do I feel, we all have access to this observer. Mm. This is not a something just, you know, certain people get to experience. And sometimes once we observe our observer and notice, this gets really layered. That's the muscle we want to build. That's where I get confused. Yeah, I could, I I now as a forty nine year old man totally get the idea of be the observer of your thoughts. And um, but when somebody's like, be the observer of the observer of your thoughts, I'm like, okay, it's a little too deep for me. Like, well, it it is, but the observer in itself has a lot of levels because how can I even talk about the observer of my thoughts if I'm not observing that I have an observer? Yeah, like this girl explained to me, I observed that I have an observer Mm -hmm. because there are many different layers to us. And so that's the thing is we're so like linear and we're so like, well, show me in one dimension what this is. And there's many dimensions to thought. And, and I won't, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I could explain that articulately. Like, I don't know if, but there's almost an acceptance of your observer observes itself and knows what it is. I think I may have pulled up that clip where Eckhart is talking to Oprah about 
when he says, I cannot live with myself, and that's the moment he realized the aha. Do you, Correct. Do you, do you think I should play that? or? Yeah. I don't think you need okay. to. I don't think it's any more powerful than what you just said, because what he his focus was, I cannot live with myself. He looked at the sentence structure. Yes. And I, the fact that there's an I and a myself correct. means there must be at least two of me in here. Correct. And that is exactly what we've been talking about for the last five or 10 minutes, is we're not just this brain mechanism spewing out thoughts. There's something behind it. And that's why when people say, you know, I can't meditate or I can't, my thoughts can't calm down or, or I never, you know, my thoughts keep thinking and I can't find quiet. You're not supposed to. Like they can subtly start to dissipate in their high energy because you recognize they come and go, but your brain will always think your brain is a processor, it's a computer, and its job is to think. Behind or above or below or in between, I don't know how to explain this, but there is on the other side of the brain is an observer. And somebody who understands neurobiology better than I could explain where all these pieces in the brain you know, reside. But there is somebody observing the processing, and that's you. And, and I, I tend to use that as what that's what the soul is. Now, again, when we get into neurobiology, someone may say, no, no, that's this aspect of the brain. That's fine. But what is that aspect of the brain allowing me to recognize the soul of me? I can see what I'm doing. I can choose. In that moment of that man pulling out of the driveway, not only did I recognize that at first I was fine with it, but I recognized how my thoughts changed and how I wanted him to be bad and wrong. Mm -hmm. And then in that space, I get to choose how do I want to respond to this? So my observer watched my thoughts and chose one. Does that make sense? It does. Do you want to hear Ron Swanson talk about it? <laughs> Ron Swanson, Parks and Rec. All told, we were in there about six hours. And no, I was not meditating. I just stood there quietly breathing. There were no thoughts in my head whatsoever. My mind was blank. I don't know what the hell these other crackpots are doing. Ron? <laughs> and that's when Ron actually tells Chris Traeger because Chris isn't being fulfilled by his meditation practice and Ron tells him to quit trying. And then all of a sudden. Which is in itself. And that's the thing is like Ron is sitting there saying, which is the whole essence of Ron on the show. Like he's the heart of the show. We got to hear it. Let's hear it. Okay. You radiated mindfulness. What were you thinking about? I wasn't thinking at all. Incredible. It <laughs> takes a ton of work for me to get to that kind of a clear headspace, no matter how hard I try. Don't try so hard. Don't try <laughs> so hard. Ron, I'm going to try your not trying method right here, right now. Chris, wait. <laughs> so there's this thing that happens in Parks and Rec toward the end where um, the the town that they're in, Pawnee, merges with this other town called Eagleton. And basically there's this episode called Doppelgangers where the people who have the parks and recreation jobs in Eagleton meet the people who have the parks and rec jobs in Pawnee. And they realize that the, the, like the overlapping similarities or complete differences, mm -hmm. but it's supposed to be, it's kind of a funny play on how like similar these kind of jobs are. And Ron Swanson's doppelganger is actually Sam Elliott. 
And he's like a very – first, they think they're really similar because they're both named Ron and they both like have mustaches and they're both like super chill. But then the Ron from Eagleton, the Sam Elliott character, he's super – super chill. He's like a yoga guy. He goes barefoot. He talks about spirit. And all of a sudden, Ron Swanson's like so turned off by him. But the truth is, they're very similar. And that's kind of why it's so funny. But they just speak of life differently. You know, one talks about energy and love and and Ron is more like just show up and and do life. Mm -hmm. But they're both they're they're parallel to each other, Do right? You know they're what I mean? not as they're not as different as we want as as maybe they present themselves as. Exactly, like there are people who just do and understand and go through and accept, and they don't need to think deep about it. That's mm-hmm. Ron Swanson, and then there's the other Ron, the Sam Elliott Ron, who's like one with the birds and one with you know. There's this. There's so many good. There, there's actually two episodes with him, I think. Yeah, I think um, there's. there's only two, but you know, like where he understands. Do you want to hear it? Oh, do you have a clip? Oh, okay. Ron. Ron. Last name. Done. Is that your name, or are you telling me you're finished talking? Both. <laughs> done and done. <laughs> <laughs> I like Ron. Okay, Eagleton Ron, tell me a little about yourself. Well, I love the outdoors, love nature. Amen. I'm a big believer in environmental conservation, recycling and composting and the like. I'm a yoga nut, and I'm a nut nut. <laughs> they make delicious milks, man. And I'm a vegan, of course, slowly working towards full freegan vegan. What in God's name is freegan vegan? You only eat vegetables that have been thrown out in people's dumpsters. What is on your foot, sir? My trusty sandals. I believe a man's feet should remain uncaged. Same goes for all chickens. Well, uh, eagle. <laughs> so, for so Ron Swanson is like through that whole thing, like getting more and more discouraged and annoyed. If you don't know Ron Swanson, uh, he was sharing, the other Ron was sharing very differing viewpoints about yoga and things like that. Yet. They're, the way they move through the world is very similar. Mm-hmm. So I guess my point is, is that, you know, we can, we don't all have to be noticing our astrological signs and our, you know, spiritual sensibilities to be able to be present with our observer. Sweet, it's me and you. A little bit. Like, I. that's the thing is I think that we believe that there's one way to be connected to ourselves that and that we have to talk about the things that people tend to talk about. And what I have found is that I, I always kind of share this with Todd with anything we're working on or any book that we're reading or any, you know, movie that we're watching is I think things are a cycle. Things start out as where we're kind of not observing it at all. Then all of a sudden we start to notice that this this new information or whatever it may be, and we immerse ourselves in it and we start to speak in that. Let's just talk about like, we'll do astrology as mm-hmm. an example. So first we don't notice it at all. Then someone introduces it to us and we start talking about astrology and we start talking about signs and we start talking about, you know, this or that in connection to astrology. And we start talking about the jargon. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking from personal experience here. I've done this. And you talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, and then you get deep into it and you start talking about everybody else's sign and everything. And then all of a sudden it comes around a cycle where you don't need to talk about it that much, but you notice it. You realize it's a piece of the puzzle. You're not, 
maybe you're not even investigating it anymore, but you do recognize when someone says they're a Scorpio, that means something. Mm. But you're not like, hey, do you know what you know where your you know your sun and your moon rises? Like you don't speak like that anymore. But you do have, and that's anything. You there's cycles to learning, mm-hmm. and and I think that our observer can still recognize all those pieces, but not hone in on them as the answer. Sure. Because it's not, it's just one piece. Right. And talking about the differences between you and I, like the astrology is an interesting one because there's a lot of things that I never would have believed that I now find myself trying to be more curious about. Mm -hmm. Astrology is still something that doesn't land for me Mm -hmm. whatsoever. But what I was going to talk about regarding um, teams, you know, we used to, our tagline used to be a logical and practical dad and an emotional and spiritual mom. And then the last few Zen talks, so we do these Zen talks that you're more than welcome to join us. First month is free, but people write in or, or we do a Zoom call and they ask us a question about some struggle that they're currently experiencing, mostly with their children. And just lately our, and when I say lately, like the last year or so, I find myself going on the um, emotional and spiritual response to the person's question. And you give them like hard evidence or hard uh, things that they should probably think about in how they're going to conduct themselves in this specific situation. So yours is a little bit more um, uh, fix it, you know, this is a problem that needs to be addressed. And I'm more like taking a few steps back and forgetting about the problem and just like how you're dealing with it emotionally. So anyways, it's just something that I've noticed that, that our roles at some, at some points do kind of swap out. Well, I agree with you in, on the surface, Yeah. like you think, okay, now I'm doing this and you're doing this, but my the things that I'm suggesting are still from a spiritual and emotional sure. perspective. So I, I'm not like, there isn't, so you're viewing it through the lens of, oh, she's actually giving a suggestion of what to do, therefore yeah. she's being logical. Right. But in there, as I've said, because we've discussed this a few times, there are things in that discussions that don't, to tell them just to take a deep breath is not enough right. in that moment. Right. So I am looking, so you're like, hey, why don't you just like, is breathe? This a problem? Like, yeah. And I'm like, Todd, that's not going to do anything in this right. moment. Like breathing's great, but what they're asking for is, should I take a step back and should I, and so I can say here, here's, why don't you take a step back and consider this and this and this. So you're looking at as I'm giving directive, mm-hmm. but really if you just tell them to breathe, they're going to be like, uh, thanks, thanks for your help. I could have read that by Googling it and finding out in 10 seconds that that's what I should do when I get reactive. Correct. And, and whereas sometimes when someone comes to us and they said, I'm doing A, B, C, D, and F, I'm working on this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. They don't need directives. Mm-hmm. They need, listen, mm-hmm. you've got all the information you need. So hold on and take a breath and just focus on you setting those down. Mm-hmm. So that's when that's needed. Well, and what it necessitates, and you know, this is my compliment of you, is you need to truly understand what the mom or the dad is saying and you know, integrate it if you just kind of reactively said, "Oh, do this," and mm-hmm. you did, it didn't go through Kathy's brain and calculating what is the what does this person need to hear? Correct. Instead of you just reactively saying, "We'll just do this," it wouldn't land. Well, and that's kind of the discussion you and I have had. And you don't. And please, this is not an always. This is not like a Todd always does this. But sometimes you're teaching something you just learned. And it sounds good in theory, but it doesn't apply to that person's emotional response. Mm-hmm. If they're coming to us in a, 
they're like, okay, I don't know if I should do this or this. And we just try and teach them the new meditative method mm. that we learned. That's not what they're looking for. Right. But if then they say, okay, I'm going to do that, but I can't relax to enough into doing that, that's when that's applicable. Right. Do you see what I mean? Sure. So it's like the discussion we've had before where it's like, you have a... We have all this information. We've read all these things. We've had all these experiences. These, this is our work, mm. and we have to be. We have to go into their experience to realize what. It, and we're not always right, but we have to at least give it a pretty good shot of what's going to work right now. Yeah, and we can't just take something and overlay it because it sounds good. It sure. has to be applicable sure. to the situation. So, okay. okay, should we move on? Yeah, we are 24 minutes <laughs> okay. in, almost done with the intro of the right. show. Okay. Um, but real quick, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Zen Talk tomorrow at noon. So if you want to just check out and see what happens on these Zen Talks, um, go ahead and sign up for it. It's uh, free for the first month, and it's just a bunch of moms and dads. We're creating a community of people just trying to support one another. So check it out. Yeah, fun discussions, actually. All right. So the name of the podcast is People I Mostly Admire. The, the interviewer is Stephen Levitt, and he's interviewing Angela Duckworth. We're just going to jump right in. This is the, um, let's see, I don't know how long this is, but it's about negative self-talk, and we're just going to riff off of it. Sure. So here we go. I know a lot of people have this negative self-talk in their head where there's this monkey sitting on their shoulder telling them they're not good enough. But the monkey that sits on my shoulder just chats with me about the world. <laughs> what does a monkey on your shoulder say? I think my monkey would be like, hi, you're great. <laughs> I think self-esteem has gone out of fashion. Since you say that you don't know a lot about psychology, I will just give you self-esteem 101, like a brief history of self-esteem. Self-esteem is the idea of liking yourself, of holding yourself in high regard. And even though there's self-esteem, which suggests it's about how you esteem yourself, there is built into the idea of self-esteem how you believe others regard you. That's largely because we're social creatures. We exist in hierarchies in society. And so it is a spontaneous appraisal of how you think you're doing and how you think other people think you're doing. And the reason why self-esteem went in and out of vogue, I think, is that there was a time in the mid 20th century, or it's like 1960s, where everyone thought, oh my gosh, self-esteem is how we should raise our children. And the name of the game of good parenting is to increase the self-esteem of your daughters and sons. And then what happened is that this whole idea of self-esteem went out of vogue, largely, I think, because there was work led by Roy Baumeister. Who and we'll get into that, but that's the quick thing on self-esteem. Yeah, it was interesting to hear her talk about self-esteem because I do a lot of teaching about self-compassion uh, using Kristen Neff's research around self-compassion. And most of her research, especially in the... Um, you know, when she first starts explaining what it is, is she's using it as, and she compares it to self-esteem mm -hmm. and why self-compassion is so much better in the long run. Because like, like Angela Duckworth just said about self-esteem is a lot of it is how we relate to ourselves in relation to how we feel others feel about us. So why that can be really tricky is the way we tend to feel about how feel how others feel about us is how well we think we're doing in comparison to others. So the problem with self-esteem overall is that we only think we 
and again, I'm, I'm, I just took a lot of information. I'm narrowing it down to a really simple sentence when, and again, it's a lot more nuanced than this, but we don't think we're good enough unless we're better than other people. And that there is no way, you know, it's kind of like we talk about a bell curve. We can't all be above average. And so if we're going to say, I'm only good enough if I'm better than other people, then self-esteem is going to, it's going to bite you in the, you know, in the butt occasionally because self-compassion is different in that it's no matter what is going on with other people, um, you can give yourself appreciation, love, a sense of common humanity, a sense of self-kindness and my, actually self-compassion by definition, by research definition is self-kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity. Common humanity just meaning that I am not the only one who's experienced this. This is a very normal human experience. And, you know, Kristen Neff talks about that do not confuse self-compassion with self-esteem. Like these are very different things. Self-esteem is a positive evaluation of self-worth self-compassion isn't a judgment or an evaluation at all. It's a way of relating to ourselves. Self-esteem requires being better than others. Self-compassion requires acknowledging that we're all imperfect. Self-esteem tends to be a fair weather friend. It's only there when we succeed. Self-compassion is always there. It's a reliable source no matter what's going on. And if, you know, finally compared with self-esteem, self-compassion is less con- like it's not contingent on what's going on in the world or what's happened or who won the award or, or, or it, you can use it in any scenario. You can give yourself love. And so, so the way I summarize that is self-esteem. I mean, I'm sure the intention of that word is, was, was a positive intention, Absolutely. but for me, it's an outsourcing of, let's say approval from something outside Whereas self-compassion, there is no outsourcing. It all comes from within you. Yes. And what I believe is that just the fact that we were born is enough evidence to know that we need to be compassionate towards ourselves. We were born with the, with the need to be okay with ourselves. And then our ego kind of trips up when we're two or three years old and then we... Uh, start telling ourselves these lies that the only way that we're good enough is if we have enough money or if we have enough this or enough that. And really it's we're enough just because we're alive. Right. That might sound cheesy, but I think it's true. Well, and I think that I believe that you think it's true. I believe that you know that to be true, but how often do you utilize that? Oh, it's that? one thing to say it. It's another thing to practice it. And Because my inner critic... Right. Yeah, the monkey in my mind is not fierce, but just really badgering Mm -hmm. you know like i don't ever my my monkey mind never says todd you suck i wish you weren't here it's todd you can be a little bit better than you are Mm -hmm. like it's it's more like death of a a thousand cuts versus like you know a sword into the heart it's just a bunch of um you know reminders like oh it could it could always be a little bit better and that's and the problem is that it that meant that what's happening in your mind is you know, Todd, you could be better because look at how this person mm-hmm. has achieved this or look how they experience this or look at this person who wrote this and how smart they are and you could be like them. And and this is where it gets really nuanced because I'm not sitting here saying that Angela Duckworth shouldn't talk about self-esteem because everything has its place. Like there is an importance of being motivated by other people's 
achievements where we can say, I do hold myself in comparison that it helps me achieve. And it's interesting because the other um, uh, Zen parenting moment that I wrote last week was called Limits. Mm. And it was about exactly this, where it's like, you know, there's quotes out there that say things like, you know, limits are there for us to overcome and move beyond. And I get so confused by these quotes because then what is a limit? Mm -hmm. Isn't a limit... If it's a real limit, it means you can't go past it. Or it, it, that word can't will trip people up and then they'll say can't is just a word, mm -hmm. you know, like, and that, do you see how it just keeps going? And what I'm saying is, isn't a limit for self-protection? Don't we have limits and boundaries to make sure that we don't harm ourselves? And so when someone's saying a limit is just there for you to achieve a higher level, I get it. Like if someone's like, well, don't you understand? It's going beyond what you thought you could. Yes, I do. But there's this paradox of when do we also realize a limit is means rest? Mm -hmm. So when do we realize that a limit means this is surrender. where I'm going to surrender? And again, surrender doesn't mean give up. It means I am going to find a place of contentedness in that this is the truth about this moment. Yeah. And so I think we get confused. This thing that they're talking about, self-esteem and comparing ourselves to other people, it's the same as what is a limit? <laughs> like, isn't it okay that you know, that we can get to this level. And then we say, you know what, with who I am and what I desire and, and, and the way my body's built or the way my mind is built, this is a good place for me. Mm -hmm. And I feel proud of this. But some people are like, no, 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 you have to go beyond Well, that. that's the elusive happiness. And actually, I want to play this next clip yeah, just because I think I have a take on this one. Okay. Recently, another um, eminent psychologist. I basically only hang out with like really eminent people in their nineties. <laughs> so Tim Beck, who is the creator of psychotherapy, modern cognitive therapy, anyway, he is going to be a hundred this summer. And I asked him recently, "What is your grand theory?" And he said, "I actually have one. I'm like working on my magnum opus right now," as he put it. And he literally said, "This is my E equals MC squared." He said, "The fundamental drive of what all people want and what gets us far in life." But also gets us into trouble is the need for self-esteem. And he said, I know that's really out of fashion, but I think when you have sadness, it is because you perceive a loss of self-esteem. When you have anxiety, you worry that your self-esteem is going to go down in the future. When you're angry, it's because you feel like somebody has threatened your self-esteem. And when you have happiness and joy is when you have an increase in your self-esteem. Okay. So here's my take. And I'm sure I'm like taking these words and making them my own in a way that they probably wouldn't appreciate. And this goes back to, you and I did a presentation at Parent University, and I know what we started with is what do you, I think that we asked the audience, what do you want for your kids? And what most people say is we want our kids to be happy. And the idea that happiness, and I feel like I'm hijacking what they're saying, so it's probably an unfair criticism. Right. It's like we want to, we're trying to like go up against Angela Duckworth and the person who created modern psychodynamic right. theory. Right. But why is happiness the goal? Like these are two really smart people. And in my experience of 49 years and the work I've done on myself in the last 20 years is the goal ought not to be being happy because it's not a realistic thing. Our, we know this brain that resides inside of our head is built to seek out threat because that's what our you know, biological DNA has given to us is we're supposed to keep ourselves safe. So we find out things that are threatening, which makes us scared and sad. So for me, what I want is for our, for my kids to be whole. 
that sadness isn't a bad thing. Anger isn't a bad thing. Fear isn't a bad thing. Joy isn't a bad thing. And the idea that happiness is, is what our goal is um, and maybe I'm being. Did they did they say that? Like I'm I'm trying to figure out where you got happiness. Is when you the have goal. anxiety, you worry that your self esteem is going to go down in the future. When you're angry, it's because you feel like somebody has threatened your self esteem. And when you have happiness and joy, is when you have an increase in your self esteem. Okay, so, so you. Uh, the so way I interpret that is right. happiness is the goal. Okay, got it. And I'm like. For parents out there, when your four-year-old or your 14-year-old is sad, that's not a bad thing. That's a all. good thing. Mm-hmm. Allow, you know, and, and maybe this is my baggage as a man because the only emotion that is really nurtured in us growing up is it's okay to be angry, but you're not allowed to be afraid or sad. So maybe I have some, um, you know, some charges with this and it has to do with more with my own upbringing than it is to the words that we're listening to. But that's what I wanted to communicate to our audience is there's nothing wrong with now you can express an emotion through a lens of curiosity and openness, or you can get angry from below the line and it can turn sideways. So I'm not saying all angry is good. It's, it's how can we give our kids the ability to express their emotions in a healthy way? Well, just so we can discuss this without people thinking that we're saying what she's saying or yeah. what anyone's saying is wrong. That's right. not the goal. Like th- there isn't, it, this isn't about someone being wrong and someone being right. That's a very example, like that's an example of linear thinking, sure. like where there's one, there's one answer and we got to find it. And that's not the case at all. There's many levels. And when you think about people who are studying psychology mm-hmm. or more Western focused you know, how the brain works and how people work, um, they're going to just buy, they're just going to say, well, happiness is what people want, right? I think when you mix in more spiritual or Eastern philosophy, you realize that that goal is, is not, and I know psychologists know this too. I don't, again, I don't want to stray too far from saying that they're, you know, that they're absolutely different paths because it all kind of, you know, they work together, but there is an understanding that all of our emotions are the nece- are necessary to be, as Todd said, a whole human being. And therefore, if that is true, then none of them are inherently bad and none of them are things we need to escape. We just need to understand them. This goes back to what we were talking about being a, an observer is recognizing really what sadness does if we allow it to come through, is it gets us back to equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So therefore, by definition, the sadness is 100% necessary. We're either going to go through the world and experience the world, which means we're going to have emotional, you know, we're going to feel anxious about this. We are going to feel sad. This will make us angry. And that's called being human. And so then the goal is not how do we just stay happy and not experience those things, is how do we understand them and how do we understand that all of these emotions help us relate to each other, find common humanity, and understand ourselves on a deeper level, again, observing who we are. One thing that one of my daughters, um, I shouldn't say that all of my daughters have taught me, but one of my daughters specifically right now, and I are talking about this intensely, is how challenging feelings actually bring you much closer to living a life of meaning. She and I talk about this all the time because I am somebody who part of the reason I went into the field of study that I did, that being social work, psychology, spirituality, consciousness, is I am... I am uncomfortable with conflict. 
And so I'm always trying to figure out how to have less conflictual mm-hmm. relationships. And this is, uh, you know, so I don't spend eight hours talking about my own childhood. There's reasons sure. why I don't like it. And um, it, because I carry a lot of it emotionally and I feel like I, I take in other people's conflict and absorb it. And I, I don't like doing that. Of course not. And what I've realized in conversation with her and with you, Todd, for that matter, it's not just her and my other daughters, is that conflict actually brings us so much closer to living a life of meaning that when something feels challenging or difficult and you're able to speak it and you're able to, and I used to say this all the time in theory, but I kind of, again, this is where we're getting to, there's so many layers here of talking about something and really living it. You know, there are people I talk to all the time who speak these things, but they don't really live it. And I'm I'm realizing that the ability, like when someone really says, speak your truth, how are you feeling? We say that to our kids, but are we really ready to hear what they have to say? Or when they say it, do we say, no, 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 you just need to be more grateful because we don't really want to hear what they have to say. And and, And that's true for ourselves too, because we've been so, you know, in our life told to just either appreciate or do better or, you know rise higher or just compare yourself to other people. Like we've been told to not deal with emotions like sadness and anger and fear and to override them, to override our limits. You see how this all connects together. Instead of just acknowledge that they have a purpose and that they're important. And I feel like you're going to say something, so I don't want to launch into this, but I have really been taken by Brene Brown's work around Dare to Lead you know, she has a book called Dare to Lead and she has a podcast called Daring to Lead and she does a lot of like training around it. But the whole gist of it is how to be a leader who is what daring leadership is in comparison to being an armored leader, which Mm -hmm. means that you're driving perfectionism. Daring leadership is about encouraging healthy striving, encouraging self-compassion, encouraging empathy. It's about being a learner and realizing that everything you're experiencing is important. So taking risks is good and failure is good. It's recognizing all of our emotional experiences as being essential for our learning Mm. and that we we don't have to fear the way we feel, that the way we feel. So one more thing. One of her podcasts, uh, it was from a couple weeks ago, but she had Priya Parker on, who I've actually seen speak before um, at a conference. She's wonderful. And she focuses on um, how – she focuses on meetings and having meetings that are healthy. So I'll just say it that way, like a, a business meeting. And she actually analyzed one of Brene Brown's meetings in her organization and talked through it. And – it's all about feelings and conflict and and that's how you find meaning and importance in the meeting. Mm-hmm. But how many meetings in the real world, you go to them all the time. How many meetings are people talking about their feelings? 1%. Right. And are those people in those meetings having feelings or am I having feelings in those meetings and am I sharing my authentic feelings? No. Right. So everybody's an actor, I feel like we're all Shakespearean actors at this business meeting and we are, we know who's playing what role and we're just saying our lines. 
Right. And, and that, that isn't, and so the difference between daring leadership or daring to lead is really bringing a human approach. And people say, oh my God, that's so messy because everyone will have feelings. Correct. Because we're human beings. But can you imagine the human beings in your organization feeling seen? Can you imagine feeling valued and recognized for who you are and that when you speak up, someone says, oh, that's important. How would you feel about that organization? Then? Mm -hmm. So you have to get through the messy part. And this is true of parenting. This is why conflict is so important is that if we say to our kids, how you doing? And they're like, fine. We're like, oh, good. Yeah. Now I don't Check have to that deal one. with that. Now I can go watch Netflix or have my cigarette or have my glass of wine. Exactly. And not deal with my own feelings. Yeah. Right. But when our kids say... I'm not doing great and this is how I'm feeling and this is scary and we try and talk them out of it. Or <laughs> That's what happens to me when my kids say anything other than they're fine. And I, I know I'm oversimplifying it, but it's better when they say they're fine. If you believe the, the fine, if you know that they're fine is a BS fine, you got to start, you got to start asking some questions and connecting and doing some digging. Well, and I have realized two things. Number one, I've always been okay with them saying they're not fine because I can feel when they're not anyway. So it's like if I have to dig and figure out how to support them in sharing if it's not with me, with somebody else. But what I've realized is sometimes I don't have the answers. That's the thing that really killed me <laughs> is when my daughters are like, we really don't need your great wisdom, Kathy, or mom. Um we actually just can figure this out or we just need to, we just need to say it or what you're saying right now is actually driving me further from what I'm feeling. So that's not helping. That's the kind of conflict that's really helped me is because I have, I was actually just having a conversation with someone a little bit ago about, you know, being happy versus, or not even versus, but how if we're just happy every day, then life is good, which I mean, of course, like that, that, that statement, if we could, if someone could wave a magic wand and say, you could just be happy all the time, that'd be great. If we weren't human beings if that we have human. emotions that have a full range of emotions, I'm in. We're right. But what I have found is that I have in these experiences that I'm having in life with, you know, what's gone on politically, what's gone on with COVID, what's gone on with our own reckoning as a country, what's gone on with me as a parent, how I'm changing, is that these challenges, these conflicts have given me a more meaningful life than I could have ever, ever predicted. That it's meaningful because I'm doing something difficult. Emotionally, physically, you know, writing is difficult. And, you know, ch like challenge and trying something that's hard and being willing to listen or being willing to work hard is meaningful. And then this drives us back to the very beginning about grit, where if it's something of value to you, mm -hmm. it's worth it. And so do you see how nuanced and layered this is? Because I'm not saying, so do that. So then you have self-esteem. Like I still am, self-compassion is still essential and all these pieces are still essential. It's just a life of meaning is what I'm going after. Yeah. And meaning means happiness, means sadness, it yes. means fear. It yes. Means, it and, means failure. It means risk. It means challenges. It means setbacks. It exactly. means all that stuff. That's called being a human being. Correct. And I guess to sum up this last segment, there's a million studies on happiness. I don't know how many studies, you know, I literally don't know. It's not my vocation to know who has what studies on what. 
but I don't know how many studies on wholeness there are or yeah. insert your new word for wholeness. Like maybe behavioral economics and psychologists use a different word for right. wholeness. Right. But I feel like we've directed a lot of our resources towards finding what it means to be happy. And for me, like, are we directing as much energy to finding what it means to be whole? And when I say whole, it means invite all emotions to be to show up and to be expressed. And I would add to that, Todd, that they don't have to be separate things, that they're overlapping, is do we realize that the feelings of joy come from doing something difficult and handling and self-regulating and recognizing your emotions and when you do, you feel happiness. Mm-hmm. That happiness is not a sustainable, like I'm just gonna think this way or feel this way or do this and then I'll be happy all the time. Sometimes the most deep sense of joy, like a, a story that I just told someone recently is, uh, uh, this was a while ago, but my daughter was having a really hard time and I was helping her, supporting her, Todd and I were doing all these things. And there was one day where she had this experience where she went off and did something that we thought like, oh, wow, this is this is huge. This mm-hmm. is a huge thing. And when she went off and did that, I then that day just went and drove and got nice tea mm-hmm. and because I hadn't done that in a long time. And I had the deepest sense of joy of her experience and all the hard work that we had put in together and that she had done and that I had done and that you had done and just getting that iced tea and like celebrating that. Better than Disney World. Better than Disney World. And so I could have never experienced that joy. Without the the, the challenges. Exactly. So do you see how like when you're like, we've studied happiness, but we haven't studied these, they need to merge. Mm-hmm. And they have. I mean, I'm sure like you said, we don't really know. Yeah, I'm sure there are. Yeah. And you know, I guess one quick thing, I don't know if we'll go through one more clip or not. We're 49 minutes in, but... Um, you taught me the word contentment and how that carries a different energy in you. For me, yeah. Um, and I agree with that. I, like I've adopted that same philosophy because happiness for me is conditional on outside circumstances. Right. Contentment, I could be content and angry at the same time. Yeah. I could be content and sad at the same time. I can probably even be content and afraid at the same time. I can't be happy and sad at the same time. I can't be happy and angry at the same time. So that's my way of choosing these words and how I kind of navigate through my world. Yeah, like, and if you want to replace contentment with, I'm at peace with the fact that I'm angry right now. Yeah, right. Like, I'm not trying to get rid of this anger. I think this anger is justified and it's actually helping me see things differently. Again, anger can propel us to actually take action. And, And it's not bad, it's usually uncomfortable. Right. Feeling sadness and having sadness be expressed through tears or whatever it is, is sometimes, sometimes it feels good, but I think a lot of time it feels uncomfortable. So for me, I used to use the term good and bad for these quote unquote uncomfortable emotions. Right. And now I just call them uncomfortable. That, that helps me. It does. And that is something that I've been, that is so important for us to explain, and and I do want you to play this last clip after I say this. If Which you don't one, mind. the do thing, doing things well one, or the ma- supporting but not demanding? One? I think the last one about okay. meaning. Okay, um, is that sometimes when we say things like "just let the sadness come through," and we say it in like a you know spiritual way, like "just let it come through," and people are like, "Yeah, I'm just gonna let it come through," and then someone's like, "Well, I let it come through, and it was painful, and it was hard," and I'm like, "Yes." I think sometimes the way we explain anger or sadness, people be like, well, it sounds like it feels good. By definition, it's uncomfortable because 
we're releasing a feeling, we're having an emotion and sadness is difficult, but it doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. Mm. And that's the difference is that when we talk about an emotion coming through, and again, we can relax and surrender into it so it comes through more gently yeah. and it doesn't have to come through. Kind of like having a baby. Exactly. Like you, your first two babies, um, I'm guessing, I mean, I observed and witnessed both of them. Skylar, you did a lot of hypnobirthing and I feel like you- So that so my first two were traditional. Were traditional. And then you learned this hypnobirthing technique. I'm sure there's still a ton of pain. Yeah but you were a little bit more at peace with the pain than the first two. The process of hypnobirthing is relaxing while it's happening. And so, yes, like Todd said, you're still experiencing the same thing, but you're not fighting against it. Mm. So your body doesn't have to do all of that clenching and working and pushing. And that's actually what uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction is, which John Kabat-Zinn came up with, which a lot of like even medical schools teach, is basically it doesn't mean you don't have pain anymore. It means that you're mindful about the pain and you don't push against it and you allow it to come through. So it, it makes it less yeah. painful. You're not stacking things on top of the physical Correct. pain because there's usually mental pain that goes with the physical pain. Correct. And they're like, well, just don't pile that other stuff on top of it. Just feel the physical pain. And Easier. don't have a story about how you shouldn't be having this pain. Yeah. Because that is how, you know, that is how we, sometimes I have a migraine and I don't even know until I slow down. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how long have I had this headache? Totally. And I didn't even realize until I laid down. And that's when it really hurts. And so these are, and maybe it's not a full-blown migraine. I usually know when I have one of those, but I'll have a headache yeah. and I didn't even know. And so the point is, is that I think when sometimes people talk about something in an airy-fairy way, like, oh, just let it come through. It doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable. Right. It means that it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. All right, last clip. I think this is the last one. If okay. not, we'll cut it out. It seems to me that this modeling part you can't really fake because it's 24 hours a day and it's who you are. Do you actually think there are things you can actively do other than who you are as a parent that will help kids? So real quick, um, so they what preceded that was they realized modeling is the best way to parent, like mm. modeling whatever it is that you want teach. in your kids. Forget about your words, just model it. But anyways. Yeah. Bandura, remember the Stanford guy, 90s, I do. I really do eminent? That. Okay. So that was a huge part of his research. So when he talked about self-efficacy, et cetera, he also relatedly was talking about modeling. When you have a mom or a dad who wakes up at five in the morning, works on their golf stroke or persists through a problem for months and then makes some inroads, that is increasing the self-efficacy of the child watching because you've shown what's possible. You might not have even dreamt it, before, but then you saw somebody do it. So most of the great teachers that I have studied are great models, and they're quite explicit about telling the students like, oh, by the way, the moral of the story here, while we persisted through this very difficult math problem, is that there are a lot of things in life that are hard, and you're going to feel discouraged when you first try them, and you're going to feel stupid. And what we did here together is we showed persistence or grit. And then I will say also make a kid feel like they're loved unconditionally, but also that part of life is to challenge themselves and to try to do better, to become more honest, more kind, more empathic, more skilled. I mean, you could boil that down to uh, supportive and demanding. And there's a lot of research, decades of it, showing that parents who can say to their kids or show to their kids, you are supported 
unconditionally, you have a firm foundation on which to build your self-esteem, but also demanding, right? Like I'm going to give you things that you can't yet do. And I'm going to, you know, give you that work ethic, probably through modeling and explicit speeches and sermons. I think that's the recipe for good parenting. All right. So my quick two cents on this. Yeah. I used to say this, I haven't said it to a group in a while, but I feel like what I want is that when our kids walk in the door after a long day of school, whether they're six or 16, that they know they're loved. So that's the supportive part. I think that the ideology that I've adopted is that the world is, is sometimes really challenging and it's not my job to fabricate the challenges. And sometimes I do feel like sometimes I sometimes go too far the other way where I do whatever need to, challenge the way she just talked about it or the world is demanding. But so anyways, that's my two cents. Well, I know exactly where you're going. I know exactly what you're trying to, because we, you and I have these discussions all the time as parents. I think what's really, again, as everything, this is so layered because I agree with everything she just said. My big butt in there is why you're demanding or challenging the certain things. Mm -hmm. For example, if you are someone who's like, I had an experience with cross country and it was a good one and it gave me everything I need. So therefore my children will do cross country because it was important to me and I'm demanding this of them and I want them to learn challenge through it. That you are giving them your, your life and saying, now have my same experience. You can teach things like perseverance through their joys rather than yours. And I know that this can be difficult and every it, it's every situation is different. Mm -hmm. But what I have found to be a lot more helpful is when my girls come to me and say they're interested in something and then that's where we play with challenges. Yeah. Like I have a daughter right now who's kind of like interested in creating a business for herself. And so it's like, okay, today you need to make a logo. Mm -hmm. You need to have fun with this. You need to... And I am challenging her with bringing things up about what she loves and she's like, oh, but that didn't work. I'm like, well, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Go this direction with it or let's do this. But I'm not saying go do my thing that I think you should do. I'm not telling her to take my path yeah. or the path that the community tends to take or the path that our next door neighbor kid her age takes. They come to me and say, this is who I am. And then I challenge them with their joys. Well, and I think what you're explaining is a lot of parents, including myself, sometimes we bring our baggage that we have not processed through from our childhood and bring it to our parenting. And I feel like what you're saying is in this example with our kid is whatever baggage you have regarding starting businesses, if you have any, you don't probably don't, you drop those and you look at this as a blank canvas. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And that I think that people would take Yes. And they, people would take Angela Duckworth's words and say, well, the reason I'm forcing my child to go to camp for two months this summer, or the reason that I'm forcing my child to play lacrosse, or the reason that I'm, is because they need to learn success and failure. I agree with the, the perseverance and I agree with the persistence, but maybe that's not the way. They don't have to learn it that one way. Like I, and, and you're, you, I have played sports I have, you know, done dance. I have done all those things where I have realized the importance of a team and team sports and and winning and losing and how much you learn through sports. But sports is not for everybody. 
Do you know what I mean? When everyone's like, every kid needs to be in a sport. Maybe yeah, some- sports sports keeps my kid out of trouble. Is that true? Is that true? Because it, it might be true, <laughs> but it might also not be true. Because you know what else is a sport? Like things where you're on a team in student council, where you're on a team, um, you know, on a committee or in theater, or you're like things that are, are things that uh, entrepreneurship. The kids are coming together and doing something. You know, you and your friends playing Dungeons and Dragons. Were you not a team? Mm-hmm. And again, people may say, well, that's not really perseverance and failure. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. Of course it is. Yeah. And so we don't have to, as Todd said, create scenarios and say, okay, now now my kid's on a team. They're going to learn all the things I did this right. Because what if your kid comes to you and says, this team is not working for me anymore? Mm -hmm. And then we say, no, you have to stay on this team because this is the only way you learn these things. That's what I'm challenging is that there are many ways different. Our kids can get their first job and learn all these things. Do you see what I mean? So we just have to stay open to that our kids have many different paths of learning and that we don't need to micromanage those paths but we can encourage them. And then when they have a path that they love, that's when we say, persevere, push through, figure this out, go a different way, because they're, they are already internally driven to do so. Yeah. They, they love it. And so they're like, yes, I have found as a parent and as a human for that to be easier for me too. Like if you said to me, Todd, right now, persevere on the marketing end of this entrepreneurship experience that you're having, Kathy, I'd be like, you know, put me out of my misery. Mm. But if you said, focus more on your writing, get mm. up earlier, mm. do other things, I'd be like, I'm going to do that. Because yeah. I love writing. I don't like marketing. Mm. That is not where my skill lies. It's a stupid place to put my energy. Yeah. So I don't think I'm any different than anybody else. Right. Every, we all have our own skill set. So anyway, that's it. So let me just kind of declare it. Like, I don't even know if I've ever read any of Angela Duckworth's books. You probably did. And you somebody may receive this as, oh, we're just kind of like contradicting or or speaking a different um, viewpoint, which is probably true, but we have high regard for Angela Duckworth and, Duckworth and this podcast that I listen to, people I mostly admire. I'm a big fan of Stephen Levitt. Uh, I think it's Stephen Levitt. It's either Stephen Levitt or Dubner. But anyways, um, we we hold both of them in high regard. It's just there's certain things that that I noticed that I agree with, and other things that I didn't. Well, then I don't think they would disagree with anything we discussed. Yeah. I mean, maybe yes, because they right. have more research and right. knowledge than we do. But what I mean is that listen to Angela Duckworth's conversation with Brene Brown on the Dare to Lead podcast, mm. and you will hear her talk about the exact All same things, things we're discussing. Yeah. The thing that I'm always trying to do is add nuance to to statements like, you know, self-esteem is this. And it's like, well, yeah, or self-esteem is good. It can be, but it can also be a challenge unless you add in self-compassion and understand the difference. It's not about someone's right or wrong. It's about it's not absolute. And I know without even knowing her, that she'd say, yeah, this has got Mm -hmm. some... She was actually... Her book was called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And people took... those words a piece of it and ran with it filtered it through their lens and and decided to create something that was never on the page she's like what about the other 400 pages i wrote about like nuance is everything but we so want answers that we make everything final yeah and we try and have it fit our worldview 
rather than realize that there's many different ways to see it. Um, in closing, I want to uh, remind people to sign up for our Zen Talk, which is tomorrow at noon. Um, we do have, uh, or I have a men living organization. So if you're a guy and want to connect authentically with other guys, uh, just uh, reach out to me, Todd at menliving.org. Uh, also do one-on-one coaching, toddadamscoaching.com. And Jeremy Kraft, he's a bald-headed beauty, avid company, painting and remodeling throughout the Chicagoland area. So if you have any projects coming up, give them a call, 630-956-1800. And we'll see you next week. Have a good week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And feel free to leave a five-star review. It helps people find us. Hey, looking for more support, exclusive content, and an awesome community of parents? Join Team Zen, where you'll get zero pressure and 100% support. First month's free if you enter the coupon code FRIEND. Go to zenparentingradio.com. Time is at a premium these days, which is why we're delivering help and hope right to your inbox. Sign up to receive Zen Parenting Moment, a quick read two times a week that helps ground you and remind you of what you already know. Go to zenparentingradio.com to subscribe. A special shout out to the guys or for women who want to share a pretty great opportunity with the men in their lives. Men Living is committed to improving men's lives through connection. Included in our program is a low pressure, 75 minute weekly virtual gathering for men to give and get support and build friendships. If you want to learn more, you can head to menliving.org. Join us for our other podcast, Pop Culturing, where we take a Gen X view on movies and TV and have fun breaking down key moments and the themes that teach us what it means to be human. And don't forget about our founding partner, Jeremy Craft at avidco.net. He is a bald-headed beauty, painting and remodeling throughout Chicago and area. His number is 630-956-1800. Thanks for listening, everybody, and keep on trucking.